Okay, I think we'll get started. We have almost 90 uh, participants already, and I assume there'll be more of us joining us in the minutes to come. So uh, good afternoon and welcome to the Fairbank Center's Modern China Lecture Series. My name is Arunab Ghosh. I teach modern Chinese history here in the history department. Uh, I'm also the convener of this lecture series. Before I introduce our speaker uh, today, I want to let you know about the remaining two talks that we have lined up this semester. On March 23rd, we'll welcome uh, Elena Songster from St. Mary's College. Uh, her talk is entitled Presenting the Panda, uh, the Symbolic Transformation of Animal to Ambassador to Advocate. And then a few weeks after that, on April 13th, uh, we will welcome Joe Taumoa from Nanyang Technological University, who will be presenting new work uh, entitled uh, Leveraging Liminality, Shenzhen and the Origins of China's Reform and Opening. You can find additional information about both of these talks on the Fairbank Center website, uh, including information on how to register. So today I'm delighted to uh, welcome an old friend and colleague, uh, an old friend from my graduate school days actually, Andy Leo, or more formally, Professor Andrew Leo. Um, Andy is currently uh, an assistant professor in the history department at Villanova, and he, he did his undergraduate and graduate work both at Columbia University. He's the author most recently of uh, T-War, A History of Capitalism in China and India, about which of course he'll be telling us more shortly. Uh, the book uh, was published by Yale, Yale University Press uh, last year. It uh, is also a part of the Weatherhead Studies in East Asia series, uh, which comes out of Columbia University. Uh, besides the book, Andy's work has, been, has appeared in the Journal of Asian Studies, Past and Present, 20th Century China, and many other major academic venues. Uh, and he's now working, as he was just telling, him, telling me and complaining that he'd rather be talking about that. He's now working on uh, a really interesting project that looks to revisit uh, reform and opening up and the economic miracle of the 70s and 80s uh, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, by studying the connections between Hong Kong and Guangdong in particular. Uh, but outside of the academy, Andy maintains a pretty active uh, public profile. Uh, he writes regularly on China-related uh, issues for a, for a wider audience. Uh, you probably have seen his essays in N Plus One magazine, Inspector, Mother Jones, and Guardian. If you haven't, I would highly recommend you look them up. I think it's very interesting stuff. Uh, he also co-hosts uh, uh, a podcast known as Time to Say Goodbye, which covers life during the coronavirus pandemic from an Asian American, Asian perspective uh, with some usually some usually very interesting guests, I think. Uh, and finally, uh, as, as part of his sort of much more public profile, he's also an active member of the Critical China Scholars Collective, uh, which is a, a group of humanists and social scientists invested in advancing solidarity at a time of sort of worsening US-China China relations or China tensions. Uh, but today, of course, uh, he's here, we're, we are all gathered here, and he's here to tell us more about how the histories of China, India, and capitalism are all bound together because of tea. Uh, before I hand things over to him, uh, a few words about format. So Andy is planning to speak for about 35 to 40 minutes, uh, and then we'll follow up with a Q&A session of roughly the same duration. Um, if you have questions, uh, please write them up using the Q&A uh, Q function within Zoom. Uh, you're free to you know, sort of uh, write in during the talk itself, and I'll keep track of, track of the questions. I'll do my best to curate them, uh, to, to sort of combine questions as uh, thematically as, as much as possible. Um, there's one other request. Uh, before you type your question, it would be great if you would introduce yourself, uh, just name and affiliation. Of course, we are recording, so if you prefer to stay anonymous, uh, that's, that's of course fine too. Okay, so with all of that aside now, uh, Andy, welcome again, and over to you. 
Great, thanks for the very generous introduction and uh, very thorough details about my embarrassing uh, me talking about the podcast. Um, so I think I'm going to start by talking without a slides because just I feel like we stare at slides, slides all day long anyway. I will bring in slides eventually, but I thought I would just kind of start uh, talking like this. Um, so thanks to Arnab for the invitation. Thanks to the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies and everyone behind the scenes that helped make this possible. Um, this talk is primarily, you know, summarizing this book. Um, and obviously there's not enough time to get into all the specific details of the book. So I'll try to focus on uh, highlighting the themes, the questions that are good for conversation that could stimulate good conversation and questions and answers um, or you know, questions for the Q&A session later on. Um, and also highlight the things that could help the audience locate it within trends, within historiography and the academia more broadly. Um, the simplest way to describe this book is it is a history, uh, it is a global and comparative history of the tea trades of China and India in the mid 19th to the mid 20th century. Um, the question that kind of consumed me in graduate school, and Arnab can, att can attest to this, the question that was consuming me in graduate school was, how do you write a history of capitalism about this part of the world, right? We're talking about rural Asia, the tea districts of China, the tea, di tea districts of India, that at first glance look very you know, rural and traditional and pre-modern and unchanged for centuries, but at the same time are unquestionably connected, deeply connected to the global division of labor, right? So how do you write a history of capitalism for these parts of the world that is both A, um, broad enough to account for all sorts of differences across different social formations, including the West and the rest, uh, but also be versatile and flexible enough, right? To account for the specific events of what precisely is happening in China, in this particular region of China or South Asia, um, without flattening it, without necessarily just comparing it to England or the United States as the model for what capitalism should look like. So I'll, I'll say more about these questions below, but immediately I think we can all see how this work can be located within a few directions that scholarship has been moving in the last few years. Um, the first is that, you know, this is very obviously a international, transnational history. It's looking at global connections. Um, I think I am kind of leveraging comparison and connection together. And um, I think it's also worth uh, pursuing for, you know, for a lot of scholars, uh, I think I'm one of them, uh, looking at connections that are not just East, West, or Europe, Asia, or Europe, the rest of the world, but also across Asia itself, across these places that are often kind of seen as peripheral to a European world system and to think about, you know, India and China or India and South Asia, two of the largest, most populous, most important places of the world, what, uh, what emerges when you pl put these places into conversation with each other, something that Arunav himself is also interested in, right? And secondly, I think this project is, um, I didn't know this when I started it, but I think um, it is very much engaging, trying to engage with an ongoing renewed interest in the history of capitalism, of which Harvard is uh, one of the sort of home bases. Um, this is an interest that has emerged, you know, especially after 2008 with the financial crisis. Um, and it is a field of inquiry that is kind of global in scope, interested in capitalism everywhere. But I do think up until now, at least, the field has been, you know, somewhat a little bit biased towards United States and European uh, inquiry. So for those of us who study places like China or South Asia or the rest of the world, I think this is a good opportunity for us to kind of uh, engage those conversations kind of on equal footing, right? The language of capitalism, the language of political economy should be seen as a good opening, right? Rather than a closure of conversation. 
we'll see, right? Um, and the other thing, finally, of course, is I, I kind of briefly just mentioned this that um, the a strategy of this book was to kind of look at what are the methods and approaches and the strengths of the South Asia field and respectively of the China field and kind of try to combine them with each other and look at each other through each other's eyes. So for instance, I think the South Asia history field has always asked um, very interesting questions about power, capitalism, colonialism, and labor. The China field, I think, is more interested in these more Chinese history field uh, questions about macro analysis, markets, early modern trading networks, integration with the rest of the world. And uh, this isn't to say these are mutually exclusive, this is just to say that these different points of emphasis could hopefully be productively or fruitfully combined to it, uh, with each other. So let me um, jump into the actual story, right? And I'll, here I'll share my screen. Um, so everyone can see that, correct? Right. Um, and let me kind of try to explain the basic plot points of my story and to do so by explaining the title, right? T-War. Um, but and, I'll, and, and through that, hopefully delve into some of the historiographical questions and concepts. So the story begins with the first Opium War of 1839 to 42, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, it emerges out of a trade triangle in which British goods are sent to, is this, oh, whoops. Right, right. So British goods are being sent to South Asia. Uh, South Asian opium, Indian, Indian opium is sent to China and Chinese tea is sent back to England and Western Europe where it became very popular in the 18th and 19th century um, combined with milk and especially sugar which is grown in the West Indies, the, the Caribbean slave plantations. So from the very beginning, Chinese tea is already uh, interlinked with these global networks of commodities and labor and different production processes. Now at the time when the British Royal Navy fights the opium war, they declare that their justification is that this is a way to quote unquote liberalize a monopoly, the Qing monopoly on, on trade known as the Canton system. At the same moment this is happening in the 1830s, uh, English East India Company officials in India in the sort of newly acquired territory of Assam, we can see Northeast India, um, they are also trying to establish a British tea industry um, on the, with the same logic that by establishing an Indian tea industry, they can quote, quote unquote annihilate the Qing monopoly, right? So in both cases, these military metaphors and economic and military processes are mixed together from the very beginning. So the tea war in the title is kind of, you know, has two senses. The first is obviously this, this play upon the opium war that alongside this war of opium, there's also this war over tea in which British, British Indian tea or colonial Indian tea was, was its own mode of economic warfare. But secondly, the more significant um, meaning is that the book title is referring to what happens next. After the Opium War, we have the Tea War, which is to say, um, over the course of the 19th century, Chinese tea, the tea trade becomes liberalized. Tea becomes the, by far the number one export commodity out of China um, over, the rest of, over the course of the rest of the century. And slowly but surely, gradually, the colonial Indian tea industry based in Assam begins to contend with Chinese tea and to try to fight for its position on the world market for consumers in Europe and the United States and eventually the rest of the world. By the 1880s and 90s, you have both British colonial actors as well as Chinese participants in this economic competition that refer to each other, that refer to economic competition itself as a kind of warfare, right? You have British colonial officials that use the phrase tea war. Um, and then in Chinese history, you very famously have the economic reformer thinker, his name is Zhang Guanying, who refers to this phrase, he comes up with this phrase in the 1890s, shang zhan, right? So economic warfare. 
to refer to the tea and the silk trades that he feels are under under attack right by by competitors around the world so the fact that both sides of this competition of this tea war are mirroring each other and both using uh, military metaphors to refer to economic competition i think is indicative of the fact that the central subject of this story is not just China or not just South Asia or the British Empire. It is this economic competition itself, right? This is the basic object uh, that I'm trying to, to, to understand the story, whose story I'm trying to tell. It's a mutually determinative, mutually constitutive process, a very back and forth process. It involves Chinese subjects, British colonial subjects, Indian subjects, um, but they all play different roles and have different relationships to each other at different moments over the course of the century. Um, and the way I kind of thought about this um, yesterday was sort of, you know, how people will talk about, you know, in a certain movie, the main character of that movie wasn't this or that person, it was like New York City, right? And I think along the same lines, you could say, you know, the main character, the main sort of story that I'm interested in telling is this international competition. It doesn't necessarily have the same ring, right? But it's, it's Chinese actors, and it's Indian actors, we have local histories, right? But ultimately, it's a process that's driven um, a, in, driven across national lines. And we can't simply reduce this to just an Indian story or Chinese story, for instance. And hopefully I think this kind of approach can denaturalize a lot of geographic categories we take for granted in history and many disciplines, right? Can denaturalize national histories where we just take for granted if something was happening uh, involving China, it must be driven by something like Chinese culture or the Chinese nation. Or it could denaturalize sort of world histories that take for granted that the world is always connected at all different moments when that's not actually true, right? And that is something that has to be historically established. So the next plot point is that uh, after, after the, uh, by the 1890s, we have the, uh, okay, so by the 1890s, the Indian tea industry actually topples the Chinese competitors in terms of world trade. Um, and the Chinese tea industry, you can see kind of, kind of collapses after that by the turn of the early 20th century. This was shocking at the time, shocking for you know, global observers that had for centuries at this point um, associated China with tea. And it was shocking, especially for Chinese observers who had not seen this coming at all. They had not taken seriously the threat or the advent of colonial, tea, uh, colonial Indian tea. And the result of this was all sorts of explanations for why is it that Indian tea, which is really seen as the product of the British Empire, why was it able to, su to succeed while the Chinese tea industry tea trade collapses? And you know, you get a lot of these explanations that are you could kind of expect, right? Sort of great divergence types explanations that uh, colonial Indian tea using Western European science and modern techniques and rationality um, naturally, you know, had all this progress and was successful. Whereas Chinese tea was held back by its tradition and its cultural uh, sort of like feudal Confucian belief system. And this is why it failed, right? These sort of West is best explanations that I think anticipate a lot of the ideas that you see throughout um, the 20th century, ideas about China and ideas about Asia. So these are economic, this is an economic divergence that very much gives way or blends into or mixes with cultural and social depictions of what Asia looks like. Um, and there's also at the time, the sort of anecdote I begin my um, book with is there's this interesting debate by the 19 teens and 20s about, well, where does tea actually come from, right? Because at this moment, Indian tea is so um, economically ascendant and Chinese tea is in such tatters and the Chinese economy is in such tatters that there's actually a scholarly debate. Does tea come originally, does tea, the tea originally come from China or from India? Or from Japan, right? And this is a kind of nationalist debate that to us kind of seems a little bit silly today. Uh, tea at this point is always 
always seen as a Chinese product, I think, at this point in the 21st century. But, um, you know, two, a month ago or two months ago, I saw that um, there's actually an online debate about where does kimchi come from? Is it a Chinese product or is it a Korean product? So these food nationalism debates are still with us. But I guess this the, the, the anecdote from the book tells us that this stuff is very old, right? And it's not just about you know, finding evidence for where this, this thing came from. It's really a reflection of these broader macroeconomic uh, competitive dynamics um, in the international arena. Um, so over time, this, this chart here, which, you know, is just kind of telling you in very dry terms what happens, actually gets reflected and refracted into these cultural representations. These are advertisements, for instance, um, that were produced by the uh, Indian Tea Association, which is the British colonial planters, um, they put these advertisements, for instance, in British and American magazines. And you can see that the sort of Indian, the South Asian side and the East Asian side are combined in these sort of um, classically racist caricatures. And we have this, uh, which I think is actually a quite interesting illustration. This is from the British Library, uh, which, and these really reify this idea that what is going on is not just two industries in competition with each other, it's really two cultures, right? Or two peoples or two civilizations. And one is growing and one is shrinking. Um, and again, so this economic competition blends into cultural and social perceptions of these parts of the world. Um, so much of the book itself is, you know, this is kind of the setup of the book. And much of the rest of the book is trying to um, repudiate these Orientalist depictions of Chinese stagnation, but also in its own version, right? Uh, depictions or stereotypes of South Asia as well. And this analysis kind of, uh, I engage it at kind of at two levels of analysis, right? The first is a sort of social economic labor history of how these tea industries were organized, how were workers found, how was tea grown, how was it, uh, how was production uh, organized and how was labor disciplined and how did the stuff get made basically? And secondly, there's a conceptual intellectual a history of how ideas about economics are emergent um, at this time. And we can use observations and, and writings about the tea trade to kind of, to look into what exactly are the changes in economic thought at the turn of the 20th century. And part of that is also changes in ideas about Asia and Asian backwardness in particular, right? This is how um, I think a lot of stereotypes about what is holding back China and India from becoming a modern capitalist industrial society, a lot of these ideas are emerging at the 19th, turn of the 19th and 20th century. Um, they're emerging out of material transformations, uh, including the tea industry, not exclusively the tea industry, but the tea industry is, I think, um, um, a sort of a key point that allows us to access these debates. So this is a book that is very much a social economic history blended with an intellectual history. And as I argue throughout, these are intrinsically linked. They have to be thought of together as well. And, you know, not to pat myself on the back or anything, but I do think that within the economic history literature, this is something that is a little bit distinctive about my approach, which is to look at both the material and the mental side and just kind of seriously think about how are these things connected. These are not just coincidental or these are not just two separate histories. In crude terms, I argue that there's a sort of a paradox or an irony. I never know if I use the word irony correctly. So there's a paradox that throughout these particular notions of backwardness in Asia that are the result of dynamic global processes, right? So this idea of that like local particularities are the result of global dynamic changes um, of which China and India, the tea, the tea countries kind of get embedded within. Um, a big part of the book is also that it's organized around this process of competition. The book is structured through alternating chapters 
Um, there's a China chapter, then there's an India chapter, but and throughout I try to kind of reference the other one to kind of help the reader track what is going on in these two different places in the world. Um, as I say in the introduction, competition is not just the framing, but also my argument for how best to understand the history of capitalism, right? The shape of the book is actually part of the argument, which is to say that capitalism is not a thing that just kind of begins locally at the grassroots, but it's actually about the mediation or the relationship between competitors, between firms, between different producers that are kind of mutually putting pressure upon each other to, to speed up or to get larger and so on and so forth. To give you a sense of scale and significance, like how much does history of, the history of tea matter, right? Um, it turns out it was, it was a big deal. Tea was big business in Asia at this time. Chinese tea was by far the most exported commodity of the 19th century, both in terms of volume and in value. Um, and Indian tea uh, could account for, uh, you know, colonial Indian tea could account for the most registered companies, the most amount of overseas investment by many other metrics. It was kind of like, you know, in the top three or five alongside things like jute and cotton and coal, uh, these major export commodities. And by the 20s and 30s, um, in both places, I think this is, I'm pretty sure this is, you know, the, 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 the first things that the, the first evidence of this, that the first labor sort of formal labor surveys taken in both these countries to kind of figure out, you know, how many workers are in this or that sector in China or in India, tea represented more employees, more workers than any of the urban industries in their respective countries, right, either China or India. So mostly we're talking about like outnumbering textile workers in cities, for instance. Um, so for that reason, I think tea should be central to any story, any hypothesis about what capitalism looked like in this part of the world at the time. So this brings us to the question, the kind of the big conceptual question that I don't want to spend too much time on because I know, you know, some people find this interesting, other people, you know, the eyes might glaze over um, about this question of like, what is capitalism and how am I trying to think about capitalism in this book? Um, and central to writing this book, central in, in addition to the, the, the empirical research and the close reading and putting up, putting together numbers was thinking about what does capitalism mean within the Chinese history field, the South Asia history field, world history, non-history fields. Um, anecdotally, I can say that when I first turned in the manuscript to the publisher, I did not define capitalism in my introduction. And one of my readers said, uh, well, you use this word a few times, so you might as well tell us what you mean by it. Um, and I struggled with that, but I think ultimately, I think it might have been good that this was the last thing I wrote in this book in the, before the before I, you know, the final draft, because I think it does reflect sort of the accumulation of my ideas about what capitalism, how to conceptualize, or what what I think I what I think I'm saying in this book. But it was something that probably I had to write at the end rather than at the outset. So let me just begin preface by this by saying that within the economic history field or within the history of capitalism field in China and, and elsewhere, there are already a lot of different models, a lot of different schools of thought for how to understand what this concept means. Um, one thing I think stands out is that for most of these different schools, you know, there, there's neoclassical, Polanyi and Marxian, um, they tend to treat the question of capitalism as a problem of how to get to the technological improvements and ultimately industrialization as the end all be all um, of, of history. And one thing that seems, seems shared in common is that capitalism in history uh, was, was kind of um, triggered, let's say, or, or, or catalyzed by the commodification of different factors of production, land, capital, but especially labor, proletarianization, right, is this key question. Several years ago, the South Asia scholars uh, Marcel Vanderlin and Shahid Amin um, produced this chart, which I think is kind of useful. And their argument was that in, uh, across a lot of scholarship, not just Marxist, but many sort of neoclassical mainstream economic scholarship, 
they had in mind a sort of proletarian ideal type, the doubly free waged worker who was neither like an enslaved or unfree person, but neither a sort of independent landowning peasant, for instance. Um, only the doubly free wage worker was the subject of the history of capitalism. For the history of tea, this is a problem, right? Because a lot of tea is being made, a lot of money is being made, but the labor, the working conditions under which they're being made are, uh, they do not fit the proletarian ideal type. In South Asia, as we'll I'll talk about in a moment, they had unfree penal labor contracts, which prevent prevented the workers from leaving the employer um, at will. So it's very much uh, analogized, uh, compared to slavery at the time. And in China, uh, we have very much have the case of smallholder, basically land-owning small peasant households, who grew tea and produced tea as on a seasonal, um, impermanent basis, casual basis throughout. And it's precisely this argument, for instance, by authors, uh, th this argument that was found in authors such as Mark Elvin and Philip Huang in the past, who would say it was precisely for this reason, this lack of proletarianization in 18th and 19th century China that prevented China from being capitalist and industrial and, and developed. Um, and subconsciously, I think the model for, behind a lot of this is uh, the story of England, right? Proletarianization in England or uh, uh, the alienation of land in England as the basis for capitalist development. Now, this is a useful inquiry in a lot of ways. I think it ex explains a lot of parts of the world, but I do think it does have a few basic shortcomings, at least for, especially for me to try to tell this story. The first is that, you know, it's a linear model that doesn't really account for places um, like China or India or the colonial or post-colonial world that are not England, that are not the United States. And by extension, I don't think this model really accounts for a lot of the world we live in today, right? Which is especially uh, the world we live in today is an increasingly Asian-centered global economy. And it's one where we have a lot of small, flexible, labor-intensive, network-based uh, organized production takes place, right? Um, so that's one. Secondly, I think most, uh, most of these economic histories that take this model for granted are what I, the phrase I use is technicist. You could say perhaps developmental is another term which is to say that they tend to equate capitalism with the question of technology, right? And most recently, there's been a lot of research, for instance, on fossil fuels as a linchpin of industrial capitalism. And that stuff is very important. I'm not denying the significance of you know, fossil fuel-based energy. But what I think that a lot of that inquiry takes for granted is the underlying social objective of why are we trying to raise the productivity of human labor in the first place, right? Why, do, why would a human want to invent a steam engine, right? And by default, I think a lot of these histories just kind of will suggest or gesture towards a sort of ahistorical primordial view that, you know, innovation is just kind of part of human nature. Whereas what I'm trying to do in this work is to say that we can actually historicize those underlying social dynamics of accumulation that would push people to, to emphasize the productivity of human labor. So the story that I found kind of persuasive in the end, and this is drawing upon a lot of different literature, so by no means am I inventing this, right, is that the history of the rise of capitalism, broadly speaking, right, it's a process in which in different parts of the world several centuries ago, everyday economic life became increasingly, though not entirely, organized around the purchase and sale of human labor, taking the form of the commodities that are being made and put up for sale. And corresponding to this was an intellectual shift that tied wealth, not to agriculture nor trade, which were some of the oldest ideas in political economy, but instead tied it to a generalized conception of human labor. Basically the question of how, how productive are you? 
how productive can you work becomes the sort of metric of wealth in a modern society or you know the aphorism time is money right really kind of uh, crystallizes the logic here now this is a very abstract notion um, but for that reason i find it very useful because it can therefore be concretized in many diverse situations different places and different times including not only the very recognizably industrial histories of Victorian Britain or post-war United States, but also diverse social forms in the rest of the world, right? Plantations, small workshops, household labor, places like China China and Asia, but also early moments in the history of Euro-America um, where capitalism was not, you know, these, uh, you know, very nicely separated factories where you go to work every day, but instead relied upon unfree work, seasonal work, casual, gendered, domestic indentured enslaved paternalistic and patriarchal labor systems, right? And I drew many of these insights, of course, from many, um, many, you know, different, different traditions within the history field from South Asia, from the East Asia field, within the East Asia field, we, I think many are familiar with the work of Kenneth Pomerantz, Arvin Wong, Sugihara Kaoru in Japan, who have kind of demonstrated the dynamic nature of this sort of, of labor intensive growth in, in, I guess we call it early modern China, right? Where before land, before land reform, when a lot of production took place in household family units. So what this conceptualization leaves us with then is hopefully it denaturalizes explanations of capitalism centered on culture or civilization or East-West um, divisions, and it foregrounds concrete historical processes instead. And it provides me with the task of telling a history of capitalism in these peasant farms of China, these tea plantations of India that do not have the recognizable traditional signs of industrialization, such as mechanization, automation, and large production. So instead, I'm trying to look for these sort of subtle social dynamics that transform and take these sort of old systems of production, reconfigure them, orient them towards modern forms of comp competitive accumulation, but without necessarily overhauling them in, in ways that we would find recognizable, for instance, as something comparable to the uh, England or the United States, right? And again, the approach I take is, you know, a social economic history intrinsically linked to an intellectual and conceptual history. So let me um, talk about these for hopefully the last, you know, 10 plus minutes or so of my talk. So one of the early chapters, one of the examples that I talk about, and, uh, and Arnav has seen these uh, incense sticks before I've talked about this in many contexts, but you know, it's a good example that uh, where I, I talk about the, the, the materials I found about the tea production process in some of the tea countries of China took on a very, I think for outsiders, very peculiar form that are interesting if we analyze them more closely. So these tea workshops, just to give you a sense of how this stuff was made and grown and produced. The tea was mostly grown in China on um, individual peasant farms. And they could be farms that specialize in tea. They could be farms that specialize you know, in rice and wheat, but on the side, they grow some tea. Um, and, but it's not like a large scale plantation that's, that where it is done in sort of a wage labor format. And then during the tea season, starting in April every year, um, the, in the market towns, so they're not big cities, they're market towns in the countryside, these tea workshops would emerge and they would hire seasonal casual migrant labor to do these tasks such as rolling the leaves, drying the leaves, roasting them and packaging them, sending them off to places like, you know, uh, Hong Kong or not Hong Kong, um, Guangzhou, Canton, uh, Fuzhou and, and Shanghai, right? Um, 
And what I found looking at some primary documents, actual handbooks, but also secondary sort of surveys from the early 20th century, is that in one in some of these tea districts in southern Anhui province, which is one of the major green tea producing provinces, they came up with or they used a sort of peculiar timekeeping device, both to monitor the production process, but also kind of discipline and, and manage the labors, right? So they used um, incense sticks that burn at a regular rate. And uh, looking at this picture, which by the way, comes from Harvard Baker Library. So thank you, Harvard. Um, I think you can almost imagine that these sticks in the background would be the sort of incense sticks that could be burned. Now, who knows for sure if those actually are incense sticks, but this is, this is a diagram of what the incense sticks timekeepers would have looked like in, in manuals um, drawn up by a sort of French Orientalist in the 19th century. Um, and they were used along the same principle as say an hourglass, which is to say an hourglass is not particularly accurate. You can't really you know, use math to calculate uh, the time of an hourglass, but you do know that the hourglass will take about the same amount of time every time you flip it over, right? So if you know that an incense stick burns roughly at the same amount of time every time, then you can use them to, at a very crude and, and you know, primitive pre-modern level, time how long it should take to make tea and also time um, how long a worker, how quickly a worker should be able to work um, if they are to keep up with the average. So we have in these primary materials, uh, manuals where these tea managers and these overseers had instructions that say, you know, when the, when the workers are roasting tea, they should, they should stir the leaves for the same amount of time as it takes to burn one length of an incense stick, or they should roll the leaves for the amount of time it takes to burn one half of an incense stick and so on. And then eventually by the turn of the 20th century, we see that incense sticks are used as part of a, a, a wage, a piece wage system or a time wage system that rewards productivity. Faster workers get paid more, slower workers get paid less. And so my argument is that, you know, these technologies appear primitive and traditional and pre-modern at first glance. They've been in circulation since probably the early part of the last millennium. Um, but the social dynamics in which they become embedded are very modern ones. They have, you have these sort of invisible social pressures um, to keep up with market competition, other tea producers in China, and in this case, other tea producers in India, right? Um, so you have these very modern social dynamics that take hold of these very traditional technologies. And to me, this is very emblematic of how capitalism as a whole historical period right around the world has often incorporated or assimilated these so-called traditional pre-capitalist elements uh, into them, into these very modern drives towards this modern drive towards accumulation. And hopefully a story like this can kind of puncture the sort of technological fetishism that I think um, that I think might undergird a lot of economic history. I won't talk too much about what is going on in India for time reasons, but something similar is happening to the extent that we have in India um, tea producing farms that actually are quite modern looking. These are kind of made quote unquote from scratch by British colonial officials and planters where they do clear a lot of land and they create plantations that look a lot like the ones for instance, for growing cotton in the United States and in the Americas or sugar for instance. Um, but what is missing in India at the time is a workforce and the colonial Indian administrators, they fail from the 1840s to the 1860s in securing a cheap and viable workforce for their colonial, the, the British investors and the British planters that are based in Assam, India. So eventually they passed legislation for what is known as penal contracts, or what we, what we might call indenture contracts, where workers are given the opportunity to sign, right? So it's voluntarily signed, although that's questionable. But once they sign the contract, they cannot break the contract. They cannot leave their employer. So this is a 
kind of unfree labor contract that has its origins in the masters and servants laws of, of England dating back to the 14th century. So again, very old, quote unquote, tra traditional and pre-capitalist, but is used towards very modern ends of accumulation um, to, to help the Indian tea industry take off. Again, I think for this in particular, I drew a lot upon um, the sort of new histories of capitalism or the older histories of capitalism of sugar and cotton in the Americas. Um, the final thing I'll talk about is this, an example of the sort of intellectual history that kind of is the, the end of the book. Um, so let me back up and talk about why, why would someone have an intellectual or conceptual history in a history of capitalism, right? Where I trace how you have British thinkers in India, Bengali writers in Eastern India, Qing and Republican writers in, in China. Um, I, I analyze their writings about what's going on with the tea trade as an index for like what is going on with economic thought more broadly in the 19th and 20th century. Um, and the, 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 the logic behind this is that, you know, if capitalism is best imagined not as just a set of new technologies, but as underlying social patterns, then corresponding to those new social patterns would be new concepts, new ways of thinking and talking about and imagining the world. So in particular, what I'm interested in tracking is these new theories of wealth and value that become articulated and disseminated in 19th century China and India. Across the British colonial and Chinese context, we see the repudiation of older ideas that wealth is really about land, so agrarian, physiocratic ideas, or ideas that wealth is about trade, those sort of monetarist or uh, mercantilist ideas, which are very present all around the world, including China, including India. Instead, what we see by the turn of the 20th century is an assertion that wealth uh, in this new world of global trade is about a generalized notion of human labor. Uh, again, this idea that time is money, right? And my argument or the argument that I find most persuasive is that these new theories of wealth premised upon general human labor correspond to societies where labor has been generalized, right? Labor has been turned into sort of non-specific waged work. So we get back to this question of wage labor or market dependent labor, but it's much less about a sort of mechanistic process set into motion, but about how does it shape our way of how the world, uh, how, how do humans relate to one another, how is wealth calculated and so on and so forth. And in that sense, in that more capacious sense, we could think about market dependent peasant families in China as being part of this world of different labor forms that are still kind of market dependent and producing commodities for the world market. So I'm interested in this abstract, you know, question, but I'm really interested in this nitty gritty question of how did these ideas, which, you know, were very much invented in with British political economy, how are these ideas being read and translated by quote unquote middle thinkers, right, sort of anonymous bureaucrats in colonial India or anonymous bureaucrats in the Qing and the Republican era, and how do they take these ideas from Adam Smith or John Stuart Mill and apply them to China? Right, which is which is what's going on, which is what I kind of discovered reading um, this material more closely. Um, so for instance, in one chapter I think about um, in 1896, 1897, one of the first translations of political economy into Chinese from John Stuart Mill um, was written by the same reformer who is also writing about the tea trade and how he's kind of juggling these ideas and trying to apply them to how do we fix the tea trade along these British economic ideas. And in particular, I look at the question in the final chapter of this figure in Chinese history, which is known as the comprador, or in Chinese, my ban, right? And the comprador, you know, for those um, most of you are probably familiar with, is the name for the, basically a name for a Chinese merchant who just works and does business with or for a European American firm, right? And so it's a very nondescript 
uh, sort of run-of-the-mill kind of business occupation. This is a photograph of a real-life comprador in Fuzhou in Southeast China. Um, we have these water paintings from the Canton trade in the 18th century where you can see you know, Chinese merchants doing business with European merchants with top hats, which I'm sure they wore all the time, right? Um, and these compradors are just like nothing special about them in the 18th and 19th century. Um, and in fact, during, for instance, during the self-strengthening movement of the late 19th century, compradors are revered. They're seen as vanguards of Chinese capitalism. They can, they've made all this money from the tea and the silk trade, and they can invest it into um, projects of nationalist development. But by the 20th century, I'm sure many of you know, the comprador becomes a dirty word, right? They become demonized as imperialist collaborators. In the 1965 film, The East is Red, which is sort of a mythology, self-mythology by the Communist Party of you know, what was wrong with old China and how the Communist Party has fixed all these problems. Old China was represented by the foreign imperialists and the Chinese comprador side by side, right? So my question in this last chapter, by looking at tea, which is sort of the ind industry par excellence that the comprador would have been involved in, why did the comprador suddenly get demonized in the early 20th century? Now, nationalism and anti-imperialist politics are the obvious answer, and I think that is a big part of the answer. But I also think part of this answer is that we see a transformation of economic thought in early 20th century China. Um, and in this transformation, economic life is seen less as about something economics, economic life is less about trade and commerce, um, is spoken about less in terms of trade and commerce, and is instead spoken about in terms of labor, peasant labor in particular, and production and manufacture and agriculture and so on. One example that I point to that I think is really illustrative of this change comes from um, a, one of these famed Republican era reformers who wrote a long treatise on how to fix the tea trade in the 1930s. At this point, right, India has surpassed China. And he kind of meditates on this phrase in Chinese that we might just kind of take for granted if we look at it for those who know Chinese, right? Cha which just looks like tea business maybe. But in Chinese, right, the slippery thing is that ye could be an abbreviation for either Sangye, trade or commerce, or Qiye, or Gongye, enterprise or industry. So when we say tea, Caiye, are we saying tea industry or are we saying tea trade, right? In English, these are two different concepts. In Chinese, they would be represented by the same term. So in this um, treatise written by this reformer, he kind of breaks it down. And I think this is emblematic of a new way of thinking in China or in the Chinese tea trade. He says, the noun Caiye was not invented until tea attained a lofty position within the export trade. So it's a neologism. Caiye has always been seen as nothing more than a commercial undertaking. But in fact, Caiye uh, spans from cultivation to harvest, from manufacture to the final product, all the way to transport and marketing. Really, it is an enterprise, Caiye, that consists of all three branches of agriculture, manufacture, and commerce. Right, so to me, this is uh, indicative of a transformation where uh, between what we academics would call maybe early modern commercial capitalism and 20th century industrial capitalism, to use kind of crude simplifications, right? But these are different logics at work, and he's kind of pointing out that there's a tension that has emerged in the early 20th century. And in this new political economic worldview centered on labor and production and, and productivity, um, what is being prized is peasant labor in particular. This is shared between the nationalists and the communists. Um, and economic life is really seen as something about, you know, production, labor, manufacture. The flip side of that then would be a demotion of commerce and finance, in this case, the comprador, as being simply subsidiary, secondary, or even parasitic on real, on the real economy, right, which is production. 
So that's just, you know, just to give you a brief sense of the kind of argument, um, intellectual inquiry that is um, in the second half of the book. Before I stop, then let me just kind of summarize some of the big themes of the book, right? It is about challenging Orientalist slash Eurocentric categories of analysis, both through a social economic history, but also um, historicizing these categories through an intellectual history, but a socially grounded intellectual history. Um, thinking about China in its relationship to the rest of the world, global connections involving China and especially across Asia or the rest of the colonial and post-colonial world. Um, and engaging a history of capitalism field that I think up until now has been, um, what's the, how do I put this, uh, conceptually global, but uh, in terms of research, a little bit biased towards the Euro, United States and Western Europe. And so hopefully can open up a greater conversation between the China studies field and the history of capitalism field. Um, and then of course, just more generally what I'm doing for many of you can recognize what I'm doing is taking a, this classic topic of Chinese studies, right? The opium war and the tea trade and rethinking and reimagining it through different approaches and different lenses of analysis. So I'll stop, I'll stop there um, and um, you know, leave it open for questions. Great, thank you so much, Andy. I think that was a fantastic, fantastic overview of both the, the, sort of the empirical richness as well as the conceptual richness of the book. Um, so the, uh, the floor is open for questions. Please feel free to uh, type them up in the Q&A box. Uh, and uh, we already have our first, but well, I was going to take a chair's privilege, but but well, let, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going to take chair's privilege. <laughs> let me let me ask the first question, and then we'll get to get to the first one we have. Um, so you know, it's striking to me, and it's very compelling the ways in which you sort of describe essentially capitalism as a global global phenomenon, and and the need for us to think about it in these terms. And 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 one way to do it, of course, is by looking at social dynamics, and not as you say, as you very strongly I think counter, not sort of technology. Um, so to that extent, it's very evocative of. Well, systems theory, Wallerstein, and you know, and you you mentioned Wallerstein. I think at one point in the book, especially his his his, his the, what, the argument that he makes about the transition from luxury goods to to essentially yeah. essentials, right? So the, the commodity trade. Um, but but I wanted I want I, it would be great to hear you sort of ruminate a little bit about what you see your relationship, the, you know, the arguments you're making, how they relate to well systems theory and the ways in which well systems theory also has a division of labor. And a way in which both social dynamics, you know, the way in which uh, production is structured, is different in different parts of the world, and that's tied to, of course, their status within within the world. So I was wondering, you know, yeah. what, do you, what is the relationship that you see? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, and I've gotten this question a few times, so I feel like maybe I should have anticipated more in the book. But uh, I didn't. Also, I mean, as as Arnab knows, you know, my advisor Adam McCune was very much the, uh, I think, the one of the few very interesting Wallerstein. Um, in our in our history program, and so perhaps it was a little bit of a sort of Oedipal thing where I didn't want to talk too much about the thing my advisor found it, uh, admirable, but at the same time, you could see very clearly it, it obviously made an impact. And I think um, at the most basic level, I'm very sympathetic to Wallerstein's project, his approach, and um, what a lot of people who have been influenced by Wallerstein are, have continued to do since. Uh, I mean, he's, he was productive until the end, right? But you know, after his First few works we have, you know, Giovanni Righi obviously writing, and they have Jason Moore writing about um, the relationship between ecology and world systems. There are some, let, let's say, uh, I don't know if people would call these quibbles or just like real substantive differences, but you know, you mentioned I, I think everyone is aware that world systems theory was very often criticized for being Eurocentric, right, for having a sort of very kind of mechanical core periphery mm -hmm. relationship, and I think that's something that I um, tried to very much counter. I don't have my own 
alternative world systems. I feel like that's too much for a first book, but it was, you know, I don't want to, obviously the global economy, if it has a center, it's in Britain. And I, and I think I'm pretty clear about that in the book, but that is not to say therefore that what is happening everywhere, everywhere around the world is somehow derivative of that. And that is, that tends to be how Wallerstein's um, analysis would kind of function. And I think he would probably agree that you need more local, local and diverse and, you know, you know uh, primary research to, to actualize his arguments. But he kind of had this sort of functionalist argument that if something was happening in India, that was because it was good for Britain and, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And the other difference I think that is worth mentioning is, um, and this comes up actually in the, in the context of South Asia and the, the debates about capitalism in South Asia, where it wasn't Wallerstein so much as it was um, Andre Gunder Frank, who was participating in these capitalism debates and Gunder Frank is, I think a cruder version of Wallerstein, I'd say, but very much of this 1970s idea that capitalism is a world system and it's about the trading networks that are most important. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I think I'm sympathetic to the, let's say the geographic idea that these things aren't nation bound. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that, uh, you know, the South Asia scholar Jairus Banerjee has pointed out that the way this stuff gets worked out though is really um, through people producing things and for the world market and the relative productivity, the relative profit profitability of different producers impacting one another. And so world trade makes it sound so almost, it's almost sort of neoclassical. It's like it's a very anodyne world of just mm -hmm. trading goods of equal value for each other. Whereas the sort of more, the tradition that focuses on uneven development, for instance, would say, no, in one part of the world, in this case, India, let's, um, was much more productive, uh, eventually much more efficient than China for various reasons. I actually think it's about the labor system in India that makes it more uh, affordable. Mm -hmm. And that impacts China. And this, this forces the Chinese tea trade to do their own thing. And that's where, where all the dynamism happens and it's uneven and it's unequal and it's not static in a way that Wallerstein and, and, and Frank kind of portrayed it to be. Um, so I guess the short answer is, I think a lot of the new history of capitalism is sort of indirectly inspired mm -hmm. by Wallerstein. Um, but I think a lot of us are obviously trying to compl complicate it and, and move beyond it and, and do um, actual local research. Yeah, great. Yeah. No, thanks. And I, I think I fully agree. I mean, one of the richest things about, about what you're doing is precisely the fact that to for a second use the world systems terminology is you're looking at, 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 different, at different peripheries right. and what's going on and how, how they are mutually sort of influencing each other, which world system theory tends to not be as much, not be interested in. Yeah. So we have a bunch of questions coming in. So I think uh, let's, let's take the first one and then I'll try and read through them and see if I can, I, I can sort of uh, you know, com combine the ones that are thematically close to each other. The first one we have is from Hans Christopher, who's a first year PhD student in EALC here at Harvard. He says, thank you for a very interesting talk. You mentioned how this is part of a newer, newer, current, newer current in studies of the history of global capitalism. Uh, how do you think your work fits into PRC historiography, where the history of capitalism adheres to strict Marxist historiographical orthodoxy? So is that, um, wait, so the PRC historiography, and maybe you should answer this too. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, adheres to strict Marxist historiography. Oh, okay, I think, okay, okay, I think, um, so you're, so I assume uh, what Hans is referring to is not so much the new history on the PRC, like your, your work, but history within the PRC, right? And written by historians in China. Um, and yeah, so this is, yeah, okay. So that's a very good question. Um, I think, yeah, I, the, 
in the book itself, I don't really do a lot of name dropping because I want to kind of focus on these broad trends, but in the footnotes, I do kind of name some particular influential authors because I do think that there is an interesting way in which, for instance, English language, United States scholarship on Chinese economic history in the 20th century, I mentioned, you know, Mark Elvin and Philip Huang as two big names. They do in a weird, in, in a sort of indirect way, mirror what is happening in the PRC in much of the 20th century. Now that has changed in the last few decades, we should mention, but I think what Hans is referring to is the sort of party orthodoxy that would refer to um, kind of the same, the, the kind of have a lot of the same assumptions that capitalism is about the proletarianization of the peasant. Um, and they would argue that, you know, it was this uh, collaboration between imperialists and compradors and landlords that kept the peasant from achieving their full potential until the communist revolution of 49. And then under the communist revolution with land reform, you know, in the 49 to 52, that allowed China to finally develop for the first time. And I kind of think that assumption is very similar to the argument you would find in Elvin and Huang, even if, I don't know if they would see themselves as sympathetic to the Maoist project, right? But, um, which is why I think, but the intellectual lineage is like, always comes back to the same of the 19th century British political economy where you have Marxist ideas going into China and then you have Marxist or Smithian ideas going into, uh, and Weberian ideas um, influencing US academics. And they all agree upon this 20th century idea that um, capitalism is about industry, large scale industry, and that requires a, a free waged workforce. And that was true, you know, with the large industrialization project of China as it was for, you know, in the communist world as it was for the capitalist world. So there is a way in which these things kind of mirror each other and kind of the sort of the horseshoe meets at the end, at the end, right? Great, thank you. So we have a bunch of others. So um, let's just soldier on. There's uh, an uh, anonymous and uh, a question from an anonymous uh, attendee uh, who asked, "What was the competitive advantage that the cheap indentured labor imported from East and Central India to Assam, together with ready British capital, play in destroying the small tea holder Chinese tea farming business?" And there's a linked question to this about the role of um, the City of London, you okay. know, the, by, by Jed Schwartz. Could you comment on the role played in your story by the City of London, which I think is related? So yeah. maybe you can take the two of them together. Yeah, um, let, me, should I, let me show one thing that actually might be useful. So I cut this out of the presentation because I didn't want to spend too much time on it, but there is a chart that I used um, that I think demonstrates this argument. I try to, like, to the extent I make like an economic history argument, um, it is uh, demonstrating, I think, I kind of dis spoiling this idea that Indian tea got ahead of Chinese tea due to its technological innovations. Eventually in India, British planters do invent automated rolling machines and air drying machines for the tea process. That does speed up the time a lot. Um, but if you use, this is data from Rana Behal, a historian at Delhi University who kind of put together just like a lot of the basic publicly available data from the British library, where you look at when is the moment that Indian tea kind of gets, gets cheap as Chinese tea and catches up to Chinese tea. So in the 1880s and 90s. In terms of when does Indian tea productivity significantly rise, um, I don't know if you can see this, right? It's not until much later, right? So the productivity question isn't exactly the explanation for why Indian tea initially catches up with Chinese tea. And then parsing through the materials, the kind of conclusion that I came up with or the, what the materials were pointing to was that Indian planters or British planters in India themselves realized that they were getting a significant discount on the cost of labor by using these um, penal labor contracts. The 
the wage, the, the rate of, you know, how much you have to pay a worker in, in a plantation was around 50% of market, market, market prices at the time. So basically, if they had to hire free labor that were not bound by a contract, they would have to pay twice as much. And I think this basic, um, I think this basic, uh, I don't know, like supplement or, or subsidization by the unfree colonial labor regime accounts for a lot of their cost saving. Um, of, of tea at first. Um, so how does this tie into the city of London? Well, um, there is a brief accounting of like, where does all this capital come from? Who is actually paying to create these Indian plantations um, in the first place? And a lot of it comes from, um, I think a lot of it comes from the UK. And I think this gets into a broader question about uh, for those who studied British history, the sort of the history of like quote unquote gentlemanly capitalism, Keenan and Hopkins have talked about how at this moment in history, the English economy had stopping the industrial or stop being centered upon industry and it was a lot more upon money migrating to London and London being sort of the one of the world's first um, capitals of finance around the world and they just had all this money that they were kind of moving around the world um, and in India a lot of British money or London money um, I think the majority of it was going into tea um, not because it was necessarily the most profitable or the best bet because it was but it was the most distinctively colonial and British right like jute, cotton, coal mining, all these sort of pre-existing industries were very much enmeshed in local networks and local Indian, um, either village economies or urban economies. The Indian tea industry was very much this British invention, more or less, right? It was the, the colonial administration picked the land, they found the workers, and they brought in all the capital and they brought in the product, the product itself. Tea was not something that was produced at a, at a local level before this. Um, so it's very much a thing that where the pipeline from London to Assam or to, to, the, rest of, to the rest of Bengal was very um, much more active than the rest of India. Great, thank you. Uh, we have a question about terminology. So this is from Charles Hayford who says, rich argument about terms and categories. Uh, the question is, peasant is a term with a complicated history. Do the 19th century Western accounts call them tea peasants? Presumably not or tea farmers? And if not, when or why does the, the change happen? So where's Myron Cohen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and he has a follow-up question about Comfortor and Cooley and wow. Yeah, so so that's right. Thanks for reminding me, where is it? Yeah, uh, three or four down, three down. Oh, and then he has a follow-up, but he says, so many of the terms in China are of Indian origin, Comfortor, Cooley, Chit. Typhoon, I thought is not of Indian origin. It's Japanese, yeah. It's yeah, but caught, caught yeah. Some of these other ones are. Uh, Kuli is also debatable, but shit, I think. Yeah, is. yeah. And Comprador is Portuguese. And uh, Portuguese coming yeah. from the Canton trade. Right. And Kuli, there is a debate. I'm pretty sure it's like Tamil. Is the is the what? Well, there's it? a there's a Tamil version, and then there's I've heard that that might be Kuli as in you know. Yeah, yeah but the Chinese <laughs> version is all yeah. Anyway. Sorry, yeah, but people. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So I'm obviously just using what's convenient in English when I say tea peasant. I don't think the term, like by the 20th century, when we have sort of a standardized language, economic vocabulary, chanong becomes the term. It's, not, it's never like chanong fu or some, some other farmer type term. Um, in the earlier, it would have been like a local term, like shan, shan hu, like mountain householder, cha hu, like peasant household. Um, there's a lot of different terms in, in one of the chapters that kind of lists this word for workshop that I come up with is there's like five or six, probably 50, right? Local variations on that term. But I think the key is that when you lift above these local particularities and just kind of visualize, well, what does, what are the links in the chain 
from household to basically Shanghai by the 20th century, it's very similar um, across provinces and across villages and regions. And um, so there's probably a lot of local nuance that I'm losing in those terms, although I do try to kind of include the originals. I didn't think, you know, you know, Arna mentioned the sort of Myron Cohen argument that we shouldn't use the term peasant because they were- And I should point out, by the way, Charles Hayford has, has uh, said at the bottom that Myron relies on his work. So we should thank him actually. And he credits, okay, Charles. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think I've read Charles's work before. Anyway, um, um, sorry. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the, if I recall the argument is something like these were very entrepreneurial um, people, so they should be seen as farmers, whereas peasants implies sort of a wage relation or a market dependent relation. And that is something I wrestle with in the last chapter, which is to say that, you know, there are people like the John Lossing Buck Nanjing School that would like to see all Chinese households as basically entrepreneurial, like American farmers, basically. And I think the evidence kind of points to the fact that on the surface, a lot of Chinese peasant households seemed economically independent and entrepreneurial, but a lot of them had already been ensnared in these relationships of debt and dependence um, to, 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 to financiers and, and to market and to compradors, right, basically. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there. Okay, great, thank you. And, and thanks again for, for reminding us. Uh, 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 there's another uh, question from an anonymous attendee. I guess it's the same one from earlier. There's a follow-up that says, and does the small tea grower model in Assam today, so a contemporary question, uh, do the same damage to the organized tea sector in Assam and make it unviable going forward? Yeah, so there's something I know very little about, but uh, what I do know, this is um, for anonymous attendee, you might want to look up the work of Sarah Besky, who's at Cornell uh, School of ILR, the Labor Relations School. Um, and I talk about it briefly in the conclusion based on Sarah's research that there's a certain sort of irony here where at the turn of the 20th century, by the time my book ends, basically the mid 20th century, there was just this assumption that bigger is better, right? That these large tea plantations in India that have slight amounts of mechanization, not too much, um, and lots of capital from abroad, this is like the future of economics. And China should try as hard as possible to catch up and the small independent tea farm of China just cannot keep up um, because it's not integrated and it doesn't, it has all these costs that are transaction costs that build up. Um, it turns out in the last few years in, in Assam, but I think other parts of West Bengal, like Darjeeling, there have been, um, the terminology is, they basically devolved from large integrated factories into segmented trade that looks a lot like the Chinese tea trade that was so maligned a century earlier, where, um, you know, this is reflecting sort of the flexibilization of the economy around the world, where instead of having one large firm that's in charge of all these different um, departments, um, like the tea growing and the tea rolling and the tea drying, et cetera, these are all now done independently at a small scale. And the term that is used is called BLF, uh, bot leaf factory, which is making the farmers grow their own tea at their own costs, at their own expense and, and danger, selling it to the factories that will buy the tea leaves and process it themselves. Looks almost identical, right, to what the Chinese trade, tea trade looked like a century earlier. Um, and now it is seen as actually economically advantageous over the, having the large integrated plantation. And there's a quotation uh, from an Indian newspaper where a tea planter says, you know, we have a lot to learn from the Chinese model because they, uh, they've, they've really figured out how to economize on all these costs. So there's a sort of, again, a sort of cyclical nature to the way these, the large Fortis factory that seemed to be kind of um, natural and in inevitable by the 1950s has now 
begun to appear sort of outdated and antiquated and 19th century forms of, of production are kind of made, have made a comeback in a lot of part of the world in a, in a weird way. Okay, so I'm gonna, because there's a nice, there's a nice question that follows up on this discussion, I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit, uh, but uh, because we also talk about sort of the contemporary global uh, sort of tea trade. So this is from uh, Kaiyu Lee who says, so is, is this a tea war between India and China or between China and Britain? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally posed as, uh, how do I answer? So it, it, is, it is initially a war between Chinese merchants and British merchants, right? British capital, Chinese capital. Um, the interesting thing is though, the final chapter where I write about what's going on with India, Indian nationalism at the turn of the 20th century is that uh, eventually the sort of unfree labor system in India gets contested by Indian nationalists in Bengal um, as you know, unfree, a perversion of you know, like liberty and exploitation of local native labor by foreign imperialists and so on. What is interesting is that um, you know, the, the, the nationalists, the, what becomes the Indian National Congress, they're very, there's a very early version of it, right? They are not rejecting the tea industry. They're not saying like, get this out of here, like get this out of India. They are actually saying, it's not actually a bad thing that the British have introduced the tea industry to India. And in fact, it's given a lot of employment to Indian workers. Their main complaint is that the work conditions are unfree and that the ownership is exclusively, you know, European is British, right? So, you know, and, and I think this is kind of emblematic of broader literature on Indian nationalism as sort of, in many ways, like passively kind of accepting a lot of the, the power structures of British colonialism, where, where Ultimately, I think a lot of the Indian nationalists, many of them, by the way, have a stake in some of these Indian tea plantations. They would just like the Indian tea plantations to be owned and run by Indian capitalists mm -hmm. and, and be free, right? Free, free labor. Um, so in the end, they would they totally accept the terms of the, not at this point, the, by the 20th century, it's not a tea war with China, it's a tea war with Ceylon, with Japan, with Taiwan, Indonesia, but they fully accept the terms of making an export good to the rest of the world and competing with other producers in Asia for the global market. They accept those terms. Um, and it's really about overthrowing the sort of Eurocentric and, uh, and the sort of unfree nature of the plantations. Great, thanks. Uh, we have uh, another question on, I guess, scale, which is from Iona Turkan. I'm sorry if I did not pronounce that name correctly. Uh, they say, thank you for the wonderful talk. Uh, my question concerns the transition in the Chinese economy from a more traditional and smaller scale production to a larger scale production. How exactly did this transition take place and how was it organized and by whom? Did foreign powers influence or coerce it into this view of a world system greatly or did it stem from Chinese merchants and officials? Especially about agency, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the short answer, the short answer is the communist revolution is how it happened. Um, with, you know, in 1949, we have the communists come to power, you have land reform and you have a lot of state driven industrialization, industrialization, both in cities and then in the countryside over the course of the 20th century. Now, the thing that, I guess the thing that I, I'm trying to point out is that, and I think a lot of people point this out, pointed this out, including, you know, Harvard's own, uh, Bill Kirby and, you know, and Arnold's work as well, that there's, we don't want to exceptionalize it and say like, well, the communists were doing their own thing, that a lot of these ideas about rationalizing production in China to, kick out the foreigners and keep up with the foreigners around the world. These were old ideas that were circulating as early as, you know, probably the 20s, definitely by the 30s um, among Republican era officials. And they were shared not just by the communists, but by the nationalists. And 
and so on. And so for instance, you know, people have like, you know, Professor Kirby has talked about, if you look at what happens in Taiwan from the 50s to the 70s, that's kind of this mirror image, right? One is capitalist, one is communist, right? But they're both aiming towards industrialization because both of them kind of have the same intellectual origins of this 1920s, 30s moment. So one thing I try to emphasize um, in that final chapter on the Comprador is that this hatred of the Comprador, this idea that Comprador is a parasite, is something shared in common across the nationalists and the, and the communists. And this is a point that Margarita Zanasi has made in her work, that there was actually quite a bit of shared idea, economic ideas among certain members of the nationalist party and, and certain members of the communist party. And I would say that this is very much, the argument I would make is like, this is very much about, you know, this is not being derivative or simply being reactive, but it really is part of China's engagement with um, global pressures, let's say, uh, and to keep up. And it's not just to, imperialism is in China. We, don't, we, we can't just kick them out. We also have to stand strong on our own and build our own industrial economy. Um, so those ideas were, you know, predate the communist revolution. Great, thank you. Uh, a question that comes from a very different, I think, perspective and it makes it therefore, I think, doubly interesting in some ways. So this is Sarah C. Have you looked into the word ye uh, and its relationship to Buddhism? In the Chinese society, this word has was used mainly to mean someone whose life's accumulated effort, long-term dedication, someone's, you know, accumulated effort, effort over a lifetime yeah. or, or, or a lifetime's of the dedication, uh, which is why it has such a, uh, a scope to cover uh, from agriculture to, to export yeah. exports. Uh, it was a word that had an unsaid warning of what you sow is what you, you know, you sow, you reap what you sow. Yeah. In a spiritual sense. So I guess karma also in some ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other than pure pure capitalism. So I was wondering, uh, it's 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 somewhat not that field, that. but I, I don't know if you, yeah, you, yeah, are, no, that's you have any thoughts. I have looked into I have been I have done my sort of dictionary searches on what does yeah mean what is the what is the drawing? <laughs> what does the ideograph mean? That's new to me. Yeah, I didn't know that. Thank you for that. Um, that makes sense. I guess it's like karma. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, we have a question from Faiham Ebna Sharif, uh, who takes us back to the Opium War. To my understanding, the Opium War, along with few other factors, such as the abolishment of slavery in Britain, I presume, uh, the Industrial Revolution and so on, made the journey of tea to India or British India. Yeah. So this is something I, I kind of talked about briefly at the beginning of the talk. But what's interesting is that the Impetus of the opium war obviously is, you know, we want to trade a lot of opium to this country and make a lot of money. Um, and it was justified along these principles of free trade. Um, and part of the flip side of free, free trade was seeing the kind of Qing system of trade known as the Canton system as somehow suddenly seeing it as this sort of violation of godly principles of freedom, right? Uh, so monopoly was this big term that was used to mobilize for the opium war. And it's the same logic that is used to justify the creating of the Indian tea industry. Now that does predate the Opium War. I would actually say they're simultaneous that it's as early as I think late 1820s is when the British, no, that's not true. Officially it's the English East Indian Company or the government of India, uh, governor general of, 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 of India in 1934, 1834, officially says, we're gonna start looking for places to grow tea in India. And that, so that predates the Opium War, but that's at the exact same moment that we have a lot of the saber rattling that will lead to the opium war. A lot of British manufacturers who want to have greater access to the Chinese market and who talk about how, you know, how unfair it is that the Chinese, the Chinese, you know, Qing has a monopoly on trade and so forth. So um, I would say that they are 
simultaneous with coeval with each other. It's not one after the other. Great, thank you. Uh, we have a question from Jet Schwartz. Maybe you know we are getting to be five, to five fifteen, so uh, maybe also make a quick uh, pitch for you know a last round of questions if people want to type them up. Um, and oh, and before we get to Jet's question, I wanted to add uh, to to Faiham and and to your response right now. There is actually a fantastic visualization. I don't know if you've seen this. That was produced by a few climate scientists who discovered that the British East, as there are several ships uh, that belong to the British East India Company that maintain extremely detailed logs of their travels oh. from England to India uh, to China. This is from you know starting as early as 1600 yeah. uh, to the early 1800 to 1833 when the when the monopoly ends. Yeah. Uh, and they visualize this, so you can actually see the nature of the trade and the yeah. connections in a very compelling way, you know, mapping onto uh, yeah. monsoon, monsoon patterns, of course, but right. how, how integrated it becomes by the early 1800s. So it's probably- oh, you posted point. that on, you posted that on social media. I, I posted it some time ago, but if, for people who are interested, if you if you were to just search, I think East India Company shipping visualization, you'd be able to yeah. find it. I'm blanking on the name of the, the scientist who produced it, but this is sort of a byproduct of the research they were doing. Hmm. Um, so That's we cool. have an, uh, another question from uh, Jed Schwartz, uh, who says, uh, back to Wallerstein, uh, the ideas of Wallerstein, which I have not sufficiently studied, suggest that capitalism is not dependent upon industrialization. Your story or account would seem to agree with this view. Is that the case? Yeah, I have not sufficiently studied it either, to be honest. There's like 2,000 pages of it. Um, yeah, I think his argument, and it's kind of in line with um, the uh, Gunter Frank argument, is that you have these um, dependencies that are created. So that the core is where industrialization happens. And then in the sort of further out from the core, you have these periphery systems and you can have, let's say, a slave-based um, economy like the, in the Americas that is not um, proletarian labor and it's not mechanized and so forth, but it's still part of the capitalist world system. Uh, uh, now, I do think, as I was kind of saying earlier, I think that view kind of tends to rob, for instance, like a slave plantation of its of its um, of its sense of dynamism, of its sense of constantly feeling pressures to improve and so forth. So, I mean, the, a lot of the history of capitalism research has shown, including you know, Professor Beckert at Harvard, that these plantations were not just these kind of, kind of like casual holdovers of a pre-industrial era where people just kind of took it slow and easy. They themselves felt pressure to rationalize production, to make the workers work as hard as possible. And to, you know, they would go bankrupt and have to do something else instead because the market had changed. So it is just as dynamic, but it might just look different than the more recognizably industrial parts of the world. And in my view, I think that, how do I put this? I think we should stop conflating capitalism with industrialization in the sense of industrialization meaning machines. On the other hand, I kind of think that a lot of places in the world that appear non-industrial, right, they don't have mechanization and so forth, in their own way are feeling the exact same pressures of industrialization, but they might not mechanize. They might just use like subcontracted cheap labor or unfree labor, or some other, some other um, innovation or novelty, but they just like an industrial producer are responding to the same the same pressures, right? There's not like one set of rules for one part of the world and a different set of rules for the other part of the world. I guess that's, yeah, I don't know where that leaves us, but I think the capitalism versus industrialization question is a tricky one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. Okay, um, so we, we're running out of questions, but I, I'm gonna, again, take chess privilege and maybe ask the final one, uh, which is, uh, you know, so, so much of the discussion and so much of what you're trying to do is look at the production side of, uh, of, of this industry, of this yeah. history. And I was wondering to what extent does do changes in consumption, both organic, organically um, sort of uh, observed, 
versus those that are actually engineered. So I'm thinking in particular of taste making, right? So the taste for certain kinds of tea over other kinds of tea. Uh, and I, in the Indian case, for instance, there is definitely a government-centered campaign that promotes tea drinking, right? Uh, at, a, at a particular point in the 20th century. So yeah. what do you see that relationship? So the consumption production side and, and both uh, changes in just patterns, um, patterns of, of, of taste. Yeah, no, it's obviously very important. Um, and you're right, mine is a little bit one-sided focusing on production. It's a little bit strategic in the sense that most of the things written about tea because it's more accessible in the English language, right? Has been about the British consumption aspect, which I did is obviously very important as part of it. I think I tried to incorporate kind of major changes to the extent that it would impact the market. So the most famous or the most obvious example is that um, in Chinese, in China in the 18th, 19th century, I think there was no real culture of drinking dark tea. Um, oolong tea, which I think really is an invention of Northwest Fujian, um, becomes popular in, in England and Western Europe because it you know, stays better on ships. It's better with milk and sugar because it's stronger. And oolong tea is only semi-oxidized or fermented. It's not that dark. Truly, truly black tea, like hong cha, right? or um, red tea in Chinese. That we don't even know where that came from, but we know it was invented in China to sell to the foreign market. It was mm -hmm. because of the British demand for dark teas that Chinese people in China started to make these teas. And then that would eventually have these ripple effects where in Fujian, they have their own version of red tea and Anhui, they have their own version of red tea. And today, I think most people in China or Asia would just assume black tea, red tea is just a natural thing, but it was actually um, a British, not a British, it was a response to global demand. Um, and then the, the, the last thing I talk about at the end of the book is in the 20th century. I mean, tea very obviously is not that not as profitable as like semiconductors today, right? Like it's not it's not the leading edge, leading cutting edge of global capitalism. Um, and as a result, there've been a lot of attempts to kind of revive it. And so you mentioned in India, at first they looked down upon tea as this imperialist drink. By the later 20th century, you have a, a, a drive to drink Indian tea and a drive um, to make, you know, CTC, Kutram Kural tea that Philip Lukendorf at Iowa has written about them also makes tea, the, the kind of tea we see in tea bags, that's very, it's very strong, um, not as like quote unquote refined as people would say. And that is um, to make it affordable to new generations or new classes of people right. in Indian society. Right. Yeah. The flip side is, you know, if anyone who's traveled to East Asia or, you know, knowing people from East Asia, there's been a sort of re of tea. Right as Asia itself has become more bougie, right? That, yeah, um, right? And like, I can't, uh, I can't tell you how many, I mean, this is like obvious because of what I do, right? Because of what the research was, but you know, I would get gifts of fancy tea all the time in a way that I kind of thought was natural, but I think I subsequently realized this sort of making, you know, sort of valorization of tea as this very refined gentlemanly or gentlewomanly aristocratic thing in, in Asia is, probably a byproduct of liberalization in China mm -hmm. the last 20, 30 years. I think during the sort of high communist period, tea was tea. It was just like the black tea, the, the green tea that the state provided. And now you have these sort of niche consumer markets the way we have like coffee in the United States and, and tea in the United States. Oh, yeah. the yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, I think the, the anthropologist uh, Xiao Kun Bing has been writing about this, yeah. um, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the, the whole, the new culture that's emerged, the, the consumption that's emerged uh, and and uh, yeah. even along the the old like the the, the Chamagu Dao, you have all these yeah. now sites yeah. where you can go and buy right. very fancy tea. Right, right, right. It's entirely catering to a domestic domestic Chinese right. Chinese clientele. Or or you know Sarah Besky has written about how in, in I think in Darjeeling they start using this concept of terroir, right, like wine 
Torah was like, uh, you have to like a certain, a tea grown from a specific soil in a specific part of the world can kind of claim a higher price right. the way like wine from champagne can or something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we, we see the sort of winification of all these, what right. used to be like normal commodities are now getting fancier and fancier. Um, right. Right. Beer, tea, coffee, all of it, right? Yeah. 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 So. All right. Well, Thank you so much. Uh, I think we can we can call the session to a close. It's been it's been a fantastic conversation, and uh, thank you to everyone in the audience. We have a comment at the end which which says uh, they'd be grateful for a recording, and I can confirm that uh, there will be a recording that will be put up by the Fairbank Center. Probably not immediately, but probably by by next week sometime. So please, if you're interested, please do look out for that. Um, and uh, well, all that remains is for me to say thank you very much to to Andy Leo, and thank you everyone who's been attending. Uh, for a fantastic conversation, a fantastic talk, and a fantastic conversation. Yeah. Thanks, thank you. Thanks, Arnav, and thanks everyone for uh, for the questions and attending.